BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Hi there, you are listening to the Lazy Genius Podcast. I'm Kendra Adachi, and I'm here to help you be a genius about the things that matter and lazy about the things that don't. Today is episode 253, How to Give Yourself Permission with Kate Bowler. You guys know who Kate Bowler is, right? She is a three-time New York Times bestselling author. She's a professor at Duke Divinity School, and she is a fantastic permission giver in the area of being human. Today, Kate and I talk about life advice that needs to be retired, what she does to live in a hard season, and what she wants to give us permission to do or not do. I hope you enjoy this conversation between me and Kate Bowler. Hi, Kate. Hello. (laughs) It's so good to talk to you at last. We have a lot of mutual friends, and so it feels like the time is now. We get to have a conversation and become friends. Transit friendship transitive property. It's A <laughs> equals B, B equals C. Therefore, A equals these two people. I love it. I like that math. That's really good math. <laughs> so I am so glad you're here. I'm so glad for my audience to get to know you. And I can't wait for us to just jump right in. So let's do it. You deal in life advice. You understand and often comment on all of these sayings and phrases that we become so accustomed to saying. And I am just curious what piece of life advice? Are you like, hey, this just needs to go. We're going to retire this one. Oh, wow. The focus of my rage just varies daily. (laughs) (laughs) I guess, um, yeah. And it's funny because every time I feel like kind of, um, like upset or hurt or something by a little catchphrase, that's always usually the moment where I've, I've like learned something historically about like how we got to that phrase and, and why we're so committed to it. But lately it's, um, lately it's, oh, everyone's trying their best. (laughs) Some reason, for some reason, what sounds in one way, like grace, like, well, we all have this, you know, we all have things. These are, these are true. These are true things about the basically impossibility of our lives. But uh, there's a strange minimizing quality to saying that. Like no one's ever really allowed to be upset at anyone else because quote, everyone is trying their best. Like apparently it's just like a, it's like they got to check out a statistician of effort and they polled everyone and everyone's at peak 100% trying. And I was like, well, Dana, I doubt it given that that doctor just said. And so I, I love it when people, people say things like, uh, that person sounds like the worst and we will find their address. Just homicidal love. 
is sometimes what I, what I need to go on. I have a friend who regularly offers to key someone's car on my behalf. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And part of me is like, thank you. Thank you for caring about me so much. But also I really like having you around. Please don't go to prison. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You can support me. That's <laughs> right. I know. I feel so bad because I love Jesus and whatnot. And I'm like, surely, surely my Lord forgives all. But a friend the other day turned around and said two to five. That's all she says. She walked out of the room. She's like, I can't go to prison for more than five. And it was, it was like an offer she was making. Like she saw my tragedy and she was going to meet it with two to five, which feels like love. I'm really here for your friend vibe. You have great friends. <laughs> I was thinking about that the other day, actually about uh, trying your best and how, you know, not like when you're at the Walgreens and you're like, everyone's trying their best. Like we want to, you know, be kind to humanity. But on the other side, we sort of say it to ourselves, like, uh, almost as a, uh, like a bootstrap thing, you know, like everyone's trying their best, but I've started to notice that what that communicates is if you don't try your best, then you have also failed, you know, like that we all have to try our best all the time. And sometimes it's okay to be done and say like, no more trying. I've hit peak trying for today. I'm going to go take a nap. Like you don't always have to try your best at everything. I do think that's probably the most freeing bit of wisdom I got in the pandemic. And that was from Anne Lamont, who is just uh, so funny and surprising and kind and pokey, like very pokey with her wisdom. And she, she said something like, oh, you, as if she was talking to me specifically, she's like, you will disappoint people every day. I, I, I was like, Anne, what do you know about me? But I, yeah, I think she described herself like she had been a plane that was like freighted with suit too much and was flying too low. And she, uh, so I thought, wow, what a, so it was so funny, but for, for weeks after I met her, I woke up every day and I said, Kate, you will really disappoint people today. <laughs> and I found that to be very liberating. I love that. That's the segue into my next question, which is what piece of life advice do you want people to hear more often? And maybe it's like, you will disappoint people. Really disappoint people. If you, I guess I find, because I guess if we are willing to say that, we would probably be pretty quick to apologize, knowing that it's already true, that we are imperfect. But maybe we would feel, I don't know. I, I sometimes uh, just feel like my humanity is intolerable, like intolerable to me and to others, you know, like, well, what if I couldn't, I remember even when I was really, really sick, I used to stay up late and just write names of people. I felt like I still owed a thank you to for giving me like food or help or, and in fact, the, the weaker, you know, the more, the more I needed, the more I felt overwhelmed by all that I could never pay back. And mm. I've heard that a fair bit since from people who said like, oh, I, I, I like, I, I, like I asked for too much, but like, I've called in all my, I've like, I, I already, I already called in all my favors and now I've got nothing left. So maybe, maybe just knowing that we are um, not ever going to be a great deal. Maybe our, maybe the goal in life is not to be a great deal for others. <laughs> But just to be like a loving, a loving presence, then you won't be like me and be like up till 2 a.m. writing names down. What did that do for you to write those names down? Was it, was it positive and therapeutic in some ways? Or was it more like, I don't know, almost like flogging? I felt a lot of shame being sick. Um, 
I felt like I was the bad thing. Like I was the bomb that went off. And so mostly I, I was just trying to make up for what I felt like I'd already done to everyone. Mm. So, you know, it, it did come out of a place of gratitude, but also just real embarrassment about really not being able to get my life together. Mm. Sounds fun. It was weird. People don't recommend stage four cancer enough. And I have to say it has some real benefits. Shame spiraling paper skin. I honestly get so mad at the shame spirals. (laughs) Like they're so unkind. They're such a, a, such a slippery slope and like, it's already hard enough. Yeah. I kind of imagine it like a tube slide at a park, you know, one of the slides where you can't see the end. You only see the entrance. And it's like kind of distorted already. It's like bright yellow. There are a lot of shadows. You know, the sun is shining in weird places. You can't really see where you're going. And then you're just in it and it goes so fast and you're just sliding down to the end and you don't know when it's going to be over. And Shame is like, so sorry. Thank you for sliding on me. We are nowhere close to done. (laughs) This tube slide goes another (laughs) six or seven miles. (laughs) That's such a beautiful, I like that metaphor because it is, it's so disorienting. I think that's one of the trickiest things, at least for me, about having like a, an account of change, I guess, is because, you know, there's, there's the, in my opinion, truly terrible version, which is our self-help machine, right? Where they find something wrong with you, usually mediocrity, and they're going <laughs> to solve it with like a six-step plan to, you know, and like as a historian, I like cataloged all these books. I've made enormous spreadsheets. I've read a bazillion of them. Um, and I, I partly why I read them is as a Christian, I I do like have an account of like, we would use the term sanctification, but like the hope of change, like the hope that transformation somehow is possible. And so how do we like, I guess I would ever picture like how bad I was at stick shift driving, but that moment where you have to like punch the, um, clutch in order to like, right before, you know, right before you're like moving between gas and brake. I guess that's always kind of what I hope for is like, gosh, we're going to like, we're going to hit the wrong thing, the wrong time. There's going to be so many negative feelings about not being able to change. I don't want to just all the lead to shame, but man, I do like hope in my life for, for some transformation that like, maybe I could be kinder, more empathetic, more less pissy, you know, than I am, than I am prone to be. Life goals, be less pissy. You know, that's actually why I wrote my book, The Lazy Genius Way, because it is so hard to try to get any kind of life advice from MacGyvering together systems from all these self-help books that don't, that don't actually work. Because you, you read these things and when they don't work for you, you think the problem is you, <laughs> not that. And it can be very discouraging, you know? And, and so I wanted to offer, uh, like principles and, and tools, not, not rules for people to follow, but things that kind of work, um, to keep us out of this place of like, okay, you have to be perfect at literally everything, or you have to be a hot mess on the floor all the time. Like those are your only two choices. And I wanted to live in the middle, you know, like I wanted to be able to let things go, but also there were things that I really deeply care about 
And I want to spend time on those things and not feel weird about it, not feel guilty about it, not feel like I have to dumb it down uh, because it makes someone else uncomfortable, that I really love this thing and being good at this thing or spending time on this thing or whatever. And so, um, and there's just no space for that in the self-help industry. You know, we all have to look kind of the same and get the same stuff done and be, you know, mediocrity is not okay. Like you said, and we need to be optimized robots. And (laughs) And it's so tiring. It's so tiring to be that way. And, um, and what I, what I wanted then and what I want to remind people of now is that, like one of this is actually the reason I'm bringing this up is because it's a segue into my next question. One of the 13 principles in the Lazy Genius Way is to live in your season. And we have not been taught how to do that. Yeah. We don't have a lot of practice at noticing when we are in different seasons, when the things that worked then don't really work now. And we're cramming it into this new shape and it's not working. And again, we're like, something's wrong with me. I can't get this together. I can't figure this out. And what I want is for people to have a lot of freedom inside that wide chasm in the middle of like trying hard at everything or giving up entirely. When you're in your season, it helps you stay in that middle with more compassion. That's lovely. So what I want to ask you, Kate, is this idea of us not being taught how to live in a hard season. How do you, how do you see seasons and how do you personally live in hard seasons whether it's on a practical level or on a soul level, what does that look like for you? Mm. Well, I, I wish I had thought more about seasons when I, uh, I think that's maybe so much of the wisdom you're calling us to here on this is when we enter into, especially a really difficult time, we, we can't even imagine it as a time because pain, it, uh, lies to us. It tells us that it will go on in that way forever, that we are alone, that nobody has hurt in the way that we are hurt. And therefore no one ever would want to carry it with us. Like it's got a weird flatness to it. And yet a strange crystallizing quality. Like I, like I, I was diagnosed with uh, colon cancer when I was 35 and I went from having sort of regular, I don't know, I think of like early thirties, ambitious lady season. When I, like, I really, <laughs> there were ladders everywhere and I was going to climb them. So many. <laughs> I was, I was like, I had a plan. It was very exciting. It was the time of making plans. And mm-hmm. I'd had a lot of setbacks until that time. And then I just had this moment there where I felt like everything was coming together. And then the horizon seemed so big. And even if we think about seasons, a season like that never feels like a season. You're like, oh, this, this good luck will go on forever, ever, ever, <laughs> ever you know? And then I was suddenly diagnosed and I, cause I'd never been through something that awful. Couldn't have known that that would have its own logic to it, that there would be really beautiful things that I would find there. Like love, like I had experienced love to like with a loudness <laughs> that I hadn't ever experienced before. I just felt so much love from my community, from my friends, from God, from, I just felt love. And also I was, um, do we swear on this podcast? Yes, you can totally swear. I, I was, if, if we don't, 
I will just say it was, uh, it was unbearably effing terrifying at all times. <laughs> like it was the grisly specter of death. It was the like, yeah, it was the yawning gap of, uh, of all fear and horror. And, uh, it was, everything was intense. Everything was, <laughs> you know, it was fall and I wasn't going to make it till June. And so like, fall was fall for me. And there, the, the one part that felt um, like I learned something was I learned that it was, I learned to, uh, accept time in a different way. I was so blown away by how beautiful fall was all of a sudden. And the Christmas that was supposed to be my last Christmas was so stunning and hilarious. And my dad's a historian of Christmas and like his like giant inflatable wavy Santa Claus is outside. <laughs> Every part of it seemed amazing. And I think in a way, um, I, I wish I'd accepted that as a season. Cause I would, I would have learned that there, are, that when you, that's, that's crisis time and crisis time has its own logic. It, you have, you have to make a lot of asks. You're really not going to be able to pay people back. You have to accept the embarrassment of, of a ton of asymmetrical relationships. Mm-hmm. You're going to see things the way nobody else will, because you're seeing the gift of your mortality and um, that it will be beautiful and awful at the same time. But then it's really, if you're really lucky, it's over. <laughs> and then what is it? So I guess that that's the, that's the season that I've had a hard time sort of shifting into is, well, what happens when life is a chronic condition? How do you accept a season that doesn't feel like it's bounded by like, yeah. oh, and then I'll have a resolution to my cancer. I've got sort of chronic cancer problems. So mm. this new season, I've tried to learn, I guess, a different set of horrible lessons like, uh, um, some people are better in a crisis <laughs> than they are in the long haul. <laughs> um, uh, you're going to be a different person and you've got to forgive yourself for that. Um, you might have different goals than you were and, oh yeah, right. You're not the same. And so I have found these seasons that you're describing to be really, it's taken me a lot longer to recognize them. I wish I had, I wish I had read your book earlier then. We'll be right back. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. I've been lazy geniusing things for a lot of years now, but one thing that's at the root of almost every challenge we solve is a desire for more time. We wanna get out the door in the morning, get dinner on the table, get all of our tasks done quickly so we have more time. The question is, time for what? The best way to add more time into your schedule is to know what's important to you and make it a priority. For me, therapy helped me uncover what matters to me, the things I wanna spend my time on so I can feel like myself more often. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash TheLazyGenius today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash TheLazyGenius. This episode is brought to you by Rosetta Stone. 
Last year, Kaz and I went to Italy, and holy moly, what a trip. The museums, the food, the culture. At least once a week, I still think about the gelato. One thing that would have been nice, though, is to know actual Italian. We used translation apps, and we made it work, but I love that I can start learning new languages for future trips now with Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program with 25 languages to choose from. I can learn on the go with downloadable offline lessons in the app or at my desktop. My favorite feature, though, is true accent, which gives me feedback on how well I'm pronouncing words as I'm learning them. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, the Lazy Genius podcast listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com genius. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com genius today. This episode is sponsored by Pros. I started using Pros because of a podcast ad over three years ago, and my hair has never been happier. Your hair and skin can sway your mood, they can impact your days in ways that you cannot underestimate. That's why Pros is made for people, not hair and skin types. Personalization is rooted in everything they do, from their in-depth consultation to their made-to-order model. From millions of possible formulas, only one is uniquely yours or mine. I love my Made for Kendra shampoo and conditioner formulas more than any other products I've ever tried on my hair. With Pros, it's easier to care for my hair and feel confident in how it looks daily. Pros is so confident that you'll bring out your best hair and skin that they're offering an exclusive trial offer of 50% off your first subscription order at pros.com slash lazy genius. So you get your free consultation, then 50% off at pros.com slash lazy genius. That's P-R-O-S-E dot com slash lazy genius. This episode is sponsored by Wayfair. I love being home, especially now that my home reflects my style. No matter your style, Wayfair is your go-to destination for home decor. The Waberhood exists in every zip code because Wayfair helps everyone create a home they love and makes it easy with fast and free shipping. We just hung the Sabine metal curved oval mirror in our dining room, and it's like the room took a deep breath and suddenly feels like itself. To find your own happy place in the Waberhood, just visit Wayfair on their website or through the Wayfair mobile app. Wayfair, every style, every home. You know, people don't, people don't talk about desperately hard things, yeah. and even with people they know and love, let alone publicly. And every time you write or say words, there is this singular gift that you don't have to give. You don't have to do this. You don't have to talk to us about the fear and the, and the chasm in this season you're in. And I am so grateful that you, you choose to for as long as you choose to do it because it's giving people language and permission to do it for their own seasons in their own lives with their own people because it's so, it's so important to do, but it's also terrifying and when we haven't had that practice of living that way and learning how to talk about it, when yeah. we haven't had the practice, the first time we enter into a hard conversation or a, you know, a diagnosis or some sort of loss or anything, when we go into that hard thing, we're like, please don't make me do this. I don't want to do this. I don't want to do this. But when we see someone else 
do that hard thing, when we have those examples, it is such a gift. And you don't have to be an example for us, but you are choosing to, and it's it's well, just that's so, so nice, but you. it's really only because I was, I've been very lonely. Like, I guess it's entirely how this, uh, started is I didn't, uh, I just, I felt so, I just felt so lonely. Like, like I'm at a kid's birthday party and everybody knows how to relate to each other with a set of roles that now feel obsolete and, now I feel shut out of a life that I loved and I don't know how to connect anymore. And not to say that everyone always has to live in the deep end all the time, but man, it has been so, it has been so uh, precious to me to share language with other people, like these little phrases. And then they, people just give them to you. Like, I remember one of the first conversations I had after I was sick and someone said, oh, um, uh, yeah, it's like about people like us where we, you know, they know something hard has happened and they said, oh, it's the, it's the fellowship of the afflicted. And I was like, what a, like, what a gorgeous, that little phrase has like given me a sense of like belonging with other people who, you know, not just with cancer, but who understand befores and afters or, mm. um, like, I guess, and what you were just describing about like the need that we all have for courage. I don't think I knew how much courage life was going to take mm. until I realized that this, uh, the terrible absurdity of our lives is, is something we all <laughs> are like facing just like <laughs> with gritted teeth. Mm -hmm. So anyway, but thank you for saying that. I have to say, I, uh, I have done this, um, largely, so I didn't have to do it alone. So it feels really nice mm. to, to do it with you. Mm. How's this for a pivot? Can we celebrate the fact that you are a three-time, three-time New York Times bestselling author? That's stupid. It's, it. that's not, that's not, it's not Get useful. It. <laughs> you are exceptionally good at writing sad books. Well, it turns out I'm very sad inside. <laughs> and it gives me, <laughs> I think the, I think the gift for me has been, there's only a couple of things I really, truly love in my, in, in this life. One is like the power of the absurd, you know, uh -huh. like what, what else feels, feels, <laughs> turns the world except random, amazing things, being able to be desperately in love with everything, the light touches, and then being able to say something truly horrible and socially unacceptable. <laughs> And that's what writing has given to me. I love it. That's what writing's given to you. Can you tell us about your new book? You wrote it with a with a co-author, right? With Jessica Ritchie. She's my yes. podcast executive producer. And we, well, it's, so it's called Good Enough, which is just something we started saying with like a funny voice. We're like, oh, good enough. But like good, good enough was like you were describing before is with the, with like lazy genius. It's like, how do we how do we not instrumentalize all of our lives? Like, yeah. how do we find a way around our culture's obsession with excellence yeah. and this super highway of capitalism we're all supposed to be on? And I find that, um, so I am a professor in the divinity school. So it's just like a lot of do-gooders of all kinds. And um, I just found how much that language of perfection and excellence was also sort of infecting our faith framework for how we, we, we can't just like, you know, be a, you know, just in this tone of voice, be a Christian. We have to like be a Christian. <laughs> Which is, we are bringing excellence to our faith. Clap, clap. You know, and so I, I was like, wow, what would it, what if I thought about like, uh, 
you know, that some of the things I've been thinking about with studying self-help and, um, trying to embrace finitude. What if I just made some reflections around embracing that aspect of our imperfection and still hoping for that little piece of transformation that lights up our lives and challenges us to be more like without putting us back on the super highway of trying. So that's what good enough is about. And, um, but it is very funny because it is in the self-help section <laughs> and that also brings me joy. Mine is too. Mine's on the self-help shelf. And uh, I had someone message me a while back after the Lazy Genius Way came out and she said, I really wish that there was a new section in the bookstore that was like next to self-help, but not really self-help. And all that would be on it would be you, Brene Brown, and Kate Bowler. Oh, that's so nice. That would be it's an amazing so section. It's just me and you and Brene. But no, seriously, it's like we we want we want that shelf because we want permission to to be alive and to enjoy things. And we also want permission to like not have to enjoy things all the time. And, yeah. and life is both of those things. It's just it's just really hard to be a person. And yeah, I'm so glad you're right. helping us you're helping us figure it out. Um and with this book, with Good Enough, um, you already sort of said it, but can you kind of say again, like who, who is this book for? Oh, uh, we, it's so funny for the, cause the, the audience that I find, I always get to be around, which I love, or they just want things that are, are kind yeah, um, and smart and funny. Mm-hmm. And I, mm-hmm. that is my dream person. And I, it turns out there's millions of, of them, of just lovely people to be friends with. And so, uh, but who, who want a sense of, of a before and after it's like, what happens when I'm done the super highway of trying, but, and, um, but I, I, I still want, um, permission, permission to change. And, uh, so that that's, that's actually been like the joy of the last few years. It turns out so many of us are exhausted and yet still want, I like when you, when you were describing the uh, spectrum, I just picture like lungs contract, expanding and contracting, like mm. being able to breathe into our hope for more. And then our desire for peace and yeah. a little bit of mediocrity. Mediocrity is, well, I was about to say, it's my favorite thing. It used to be my mortal enemy for so long because I really like, I really like perfection. You know, it's part of how, it's part of how I was raised. It's what I developed, uh, to protect myself. It's what we, you know, we all develop something to protect ourselves. And now I look at perfection and I'm like, oh man, it is so exhausting and it doesn't do anything. Yeah, It literally doesn't do anything except maybe drive people away because no one wants to be around a perfect person. And what we so desperately are trying to do is hide the things that would actually endear us to people. It's not not necessarily conflating like having a messy house and being a vulnerable person. Like you can be a vulnerable person and have a tidy house. Like those things are not mutually exclusive. But there is this sense that the, the very thing that we are trying to do, that we are trying to draw people near to make ourselves acceptable is the very thing that's dri- that drives them away. That's such a powerful point. I love what you said about it being a self-protective strategy. That's, 
I'm tuck that away for later. That's really helpful. I remember because when I was little, I formed a best friends writing club with my sister and a girl named Michelle. Cool. And we made ourselves badges. And I remember writing these. Um, it was always just with this beautiful girl who had a horse named Artemis. And it was a very powerful experience between girl and horse. Mm-hmm. And, um, and my sister would read these books, books, quote unquote, and it was like, she's not relatable. She doesn't have any flaws. And I was like, I, so I gave her a single scar on her (laughs) silvered and beautiful up her forearm. And I think that's like often what we're looking for in like, especially in the relatable women's genres. Like she can be flawed, but she can only have a single porcelain scar (laughs) as opposed to like a personality disorder or like a tragic and incurable disease. So I think we should like up the, uh, maybe up the ante on, on terrible flaws. That, that might be one of my favorite uh, stories about a child writer, like ever. Um, so you said, you said the word permission a second ago. And as we close, I wanted to actually ask you about what kind of permission you would give um, to the people listening, because I, in my, actually in my Instagram bio, it says resident permission giver, because I think that we we just need people to tell us that it's okay. You know, we need permission to do all kinds of things. Like that's half of my job. Half of my job is being like, okay, we got practical stuff to do. Like here's some tools, here's some ideas on cleaning your kitchen and doing laundry and making dinner and all these things. But then the other side is like, okay, the other half is permission. And you are so good at giving permission and putting words to things that people need to hear. And so as we close, I would just love to hear for you. Is there anything that you want to offer permission for these listeners to do or think or not think or not do? Yeah. Well, I guess maybe it's just, I mean, this was just a little habit. I started after I got sick that I have found helps me like reach for something, but then let it go. I, uh, I was so worried about not having enough days. Days have always been very stressful. Um, and so I, I started trying to pay attention to the moment and there there's always one every day that feels like brighter and lovelier than other moments. And, and it was one of the strange gifts of being sick is that, you know, is that things I love really did become a bit brighter. And since then that has mostly just been like a habit I have to keep, which is there's a minute, a second time will feel really slow and stretchy and you'll notice it and it'll have a shape to it and it'll just fill your heart. And in that second, just take it. Like just take the beat and see it for all it is. And then, and then let it go, but let it count for something like, um, mine is very often related to my son because he is so evil and his (laughs) evil brings me an incredible amount of joy. And, uh, like I'll walk into what I think is him having a bath and he's wearing ski goggles and he's got his towel over the vent and it's blowing. And I realize he's pretending to be a skydiver. Amazing. Headed careening <laughs> toward Earth. <laughs> and in that moment, I just, you know, like Kirsten Dunst in the movie, Elizabeth town. And she holds up her hands like a little camera and goes, mm-hmm. but like, I keep it. Mm-hmm. And at the end of the day, I try to remember it because People love to just look ahead, but the beautiful thing about the past is it's already ours. So mm. that's that's my best daily thing. 
You guys, I'm just, I'm so thrilled and honored that Kate was able to come on this podcast and that you got to hear her words. And I just want to say that her words in her books are so incredibly powerful and also desperately funny. Like, I don't know how a person can talk about pain and make you laugh. Like, it's just really strange, but she is a master at it. And her books are just a gift. They are such a gift. Her newest book is called Good Enough. 40-ish devotionals for a life of imperfection, and you can get it wherever books are sold. I have talked about her book, No Cure for Being Human, that she mentioned earlier in the episode. I was so sad when it was over. Like, I was like, can I say the last couple of pages? Because it's just, it was just such a beautiful companion. So I highly, highly recommend Kate's writing, and um, I'm just so glad that she was on the show. So you, uh, you can follow her at Kate Bowler, bowler like a bowling ball, like a person who rolls a bowling ball. And uh, thank you so much for listening to uh, this podcast. I'm so grateful that you are here. Don't forget that tickets are still on sale for the pub crawl. Uh, I'm going to be traveling in April mostly to uh, celebrate the release of the Lazy Genius Kitchen. And I just, I cannot wait to meet you and see you. So you can find all the details for that at thelazygeniuscollective.com slash pub crawl. Thank you so much for listening, you guys. And until next time, be a genius about the things that matter and lazy about the things that don't. I'm Kendra. I'll see you next week. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.